Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View. Today, I, of course, am Adam Lowther. And also today, Curtis McGiffin is still Curtis McGiffin, and Jim Petrosky is still Jim Petrosky. They have not changed, and it's just going to be the three of us this time. Uh, so it's it's going to be a you know it's a, it's an intimate setting this time with just the three of us, and of course, the Nuclear View is a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies where. As we will tell you at the end of the show, I'll tell you right now, we always encourage you to think deterrence. Now, with that, I wanted to pose to you guys three specific questions for today's podcast because we've had some listeners, and one of our listeners, uh, Mehran, has asked us if we could address some of his his specific questions questions of concern. And so we're going to try to do that. So that's going to be the focus of the show. So let me go ahead and kick that off by asking you, Curtis, to answer this question first. And then, of course, we'll go to Jim. Now, here it is. Is there a specific calculation method behind determining how many warheads is enough for establishing deterrence. Well, thanks, Adam. Uh, you mentioned this, and, and Jim, good to see you again. I know you mentioned this was an intimate setting, and in honor of that, I've got a candle burning here next to me. Um, and uh, uh, so let me uh, think about your question here, because uh, you know the answer to this is 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 a terrible one, and it's it's yes and no. Uh, so. Uh, it, it really it de- it depends on where you're looking at. But let's start with sort of the historical part of this. Um, you know, the, the question this question came up in the '60s uh, under then Secretary of Defense McNamara in the Kennedy administration of more or less how much was enough to have assured destruction. Uh, and having moved on from the Eisenhower administration and the, the, the strategy of massive retaliation, we, the, there was a struggle to figure out how uh, we were going to sort of meet all of this out. And uh, so McNamara and the WizKids, uh, you know, sort of gonculated uh, some assessments here. And they determined um, that they needed enough uh, to hold uh, the Soviet Union at risk, uh, in a sense, to deter the Soviet Union, uh, would be to have enough to destroy 50% of their, um, of their warfighting capability and industry and 25 to 30% of their population. That if they could hold that at risk, that that would deter the Soviet Union. And so the question they came up with is, how much is that? And so the determination was 400 megatons. So it's 1960s technology, right? How do you guarantee 400 megatons on target? Well, 
you gotta you gotta assume that some things won't work. You might need to hit things more than once. So the answer was, uh, you gotta hit everything with three. So it's twelve hundred megatons. I need twelve hundred megatons to guarantee four hundred megatons mm-hmm. on target. And so uh, if you um, it, it, uh, so that so thus went forward, how many megatons should we have? And, and I, 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 Jim will probably be able to tell us better than I could if we actually ever achieve 1200 megatons. Um, but it was sort of the, sort of the idea of, well, how do we divide that up? And sort of the triad kind of came about and we'll put 400 megatons on each and, and, uh, and, and sort of, uh, share all of this. The interesting thing to note is though, is that nobody asked Khrushchev if he was, de- if that was actually what would deter him. Was he deterred by 400 megatons? Was he deterred by 50% and 25% loss of population? We don't know. Uh, but that is certainly what would have deterred McNamara. And so he sort of mirror imaged and projected that, well, if it would deter me and the United States, it would surely def- uh, deter another rational actor <clears throat> like Khrushchev and the Soviet Union. And so we kind of marched along in that thought process uh, through the Cold War. And then, of course, you know, we, we dropped our warhead count, you know, by 90 by 90 percent uh, since the end of the Cold War and the post-Cold War era which uh, may or may not have ended in 2022, depending upon who you want to ask. Um, and, and so now the big question is, uh, as you mentioned, is how much is it, how much do you need? The question is, is how much is enough? And the answer to that is, is you got to do a good assessment on the adversary, figure out what they value the most, uh, hold, uh, determine what you need, what kind of weapons you need and how many weapons do you need to hold that at risk Theoretically, you would need less because they might be more accurate. And then you can thus achieve deterrence. So that's my very unsatisfactory answer <laughs> to how much so do you need. Let me, before Jim jumps in, I, I want a, you to clarify. So we've had two types of targeting strategies. Yes. Counter value and counter force. Can you maybe just explain a little bit? what those differences are because they have, you know, very different requirements for the Chinese who have had, you know, they've said, Hey, we only, we're only going to have enough to destroy your major cities, a counter value strategy. Whereas the Russians have sort of followed our lead. Talk about that for a second. So uh, yeah. So, so counter value, uh, you know, is, is sort of euphemistically the targeting of cities um, and the populations within them. Um, and theoretically, if you're going to target cities, uh, you may not need as many weapons. Um, the, the challenge here is, is that uh, uh, that's just not an, an ethical, moral or legal thing for the United States to do. It's a violation of the law of armed conflict uh, to wantonly target uh, citizens uh, without any military value. And and so uh, th- there's a, a lot of challenges there. So we went to this counter force uh, strategy, um, which then says we're only going to target um, the industry and, and weapon systems. This is sort of what McNamara began to uh, to get us there. Uh, the challenge here, though, is that with a counter force strategy, you have to have more weapons, and so it's more expensive. You got more weapons to produce and maintain, and and these sorts of things. But that's the cost of ethical national security, I suppose. Uh, and so today, America still sort of lives under. Uh, a counter force strategy, which is why we we do have to have certain uh, amounts of what I call capacity in order to 
wage deterrence um, and thus uh, be able to hold enough targets at risk that is meaningful to the adversary and therefore they would be deterred. I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be destroyed by all of that, so I won't act today. Uh, and so that is essentially uh, uh, what that is. But for those folks out there who are thinking about, who are, who are minimalists, who, who believe that we only need a few weapons, uh, I think there was a study 10 or 15 years ago, uh, it said <laughs> back at Air University, it said 311, right? Uh, imagine if we only had 311, where, what would we target with those? It would, might have to be cities. Uh, and we just simply can't do that. And so uh, that's kind of where we are. Now. And, and what are the Soviets or the Russians or the Chinese using a, uh, you know, to target us? It's probably a mixture of the two. And it depends on the numbers that they have. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, many will speculate as to whether or not they have the desire to spare our cities the way we seem to have the desire to spare theirs. Jim. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Adam and uh, Curtis. I, I appreciate the setup here. By the way, when we went into this meeting or into this uh, to this show, Adam asked me if I had anything to say, and I said, well, I'm not sure I really do. Um, so I'm going to take the rest of the show now. Uh, first of all, when Adam speaks of an intimate meeting here and Curtis has a candle, I have no idea what you have a candle for. I'll just say for me, an intimate setting is me, a computer and a calculator. That's about as far as I go. So, um, so the question is regarding the question is regarding, you know, whether we can deter someone and I'm going to disagree with Curtis wholeheartedly. He said, we weren't sure whether we could deter Russia with the uh, uh, back in the 60s and 70s with the number of weapons we had. I disagree. We didn't have a nuclear exchange. So I would say we did deter. So we had the right number. Uh, we had no no nuclear exchanges, even though we used our nuclear weapons to cause that exchange not to occur. So that would be my first answer. We were very successful in our deterrence. I sort of like the Cold War mentality. We didn't we didn't have a nuclear war. Uh, or a great power uh, war, as a matter of fact. Uh, the second question, and this is, again, if you listen to our previous podcast, which I would gl uh, gladly have you uh, listen to, you know, I've given a number already. The first number I gave was 42. That was a tongue-in-cheek answer. And then the last podcast I was asked again by Adam. So I'm going to say it was somewhere between one and a million, but I want to go a little bit more deeply into that today, Adam. Uh, so, so, and, and for our listeners, of course, this isn't just for Adam's uh, consumption. So anyway, uh, so how many, how many do we need? Well, the way you, the, the one thing is if you just say we need so many megatons, that sort of is a, that's a real sophomoreish, you know, sophomoric answer. Because if I had one 1,200 megaton weapon, would the effects of that one weapon be able to produce the effects in the areas and in the ways that I want them to occur? And the answer is probably not. I mean, it would probably be big and it would probably be, you know, get you a lot of attention. But if you wanted to put those effects in many places, I doubt you could do that. You need many weapons that are designed to do the effect that the military operational planners say are needed in order to deter our enemy or our adversary. I guess if we're, we're in a shooting war, they're enemies then. And so, uh, you know, so we want to make sure that we have the weapons to do that. And from a technology standpoint, we have the capability of building weapons that are designed to do very small but very important nuclear explosions and provide effects in small areas and large areas, in small ways and big ways, and deliver them 
in multiple ways. So the adversary or enemy at that point is unable to keep it from occurring. That's the objective, because if they are afraid that they can keep it from occurring, they will not start the fight. And so that's what deterrence is about. So how, what is the number? The number is enough to keep them from doing something. And we did that back in the Cold War. Back to you, Adam. Well, so I guess my thought is, is on this topic, is it sort of a flexible number? that depends. It depends on what are the targets, you know, what are the, you know, when we all know from our work in DOD and with DITRA, you know, that we have software that helps us understand our adversaries' targets and we understand what it takes to destroy those targets. And so there, to me, there is sort of a, I wouldn't say that you can say, well, I need a, you know, 742, but you can certainly say, well, if we're going to have a counter force strategy, okay, well, you know how we have a counter force strategy. So we're not going to target population centers. So that, that tells you we're not going to inherently look for, you know, just big yields. So what are the yields required to destroy specific discrete targets? Well, then that drives what type of weapon, what yield of the weapon. And then, you know, based on who your adversary is and what you've determined are the industrial and military targets you need to to destroy, then that drives, you know, drives a specific number for you. And then if, for example, they were to get uh, competent uh, ballistic missile defenses that they put in their, let's say, ICBM fields, well, then that's probably going to drive your number up. So there, to me, there are, you know, specific things you can do or you can say, hey, these are some of the considerations that we take into account whenever we're going to, you know, try to come up with a number. Go ahead, yeah, Jim. Adam, Adam, I would say one other thing. You said there's software we do this with. But remember, we have a, an extensive history of testing and evaluation. And even without nuclear weapon testing, we've been able to replicate the physics and the oh, material sure. yeah. characteristics under certain, you know, pressures and temperatures that are achieved in nuclear weapons. We're able to replicate that. So we have an understanding. And that is hugely important when you begin to design a nuclear weapon detonation to produce a specific effect. And that's important that people, that people understand that's what we do. You're right. We don't just say, well, bigger is better. So let's just make the biggest weapon we have and shoot it at people. We're not doing that. We're building specific weapons to achieve specific military effects that are important. And by the way, I talk about all of those in the nuclear knowledge podcast that I've uh, <laughs> that I've recently discussed about nuclear and conventional weapons because it's important to talk about those differences in effects. Yeah, I agree. Did you want to say something, Curtis? Yeah, I just want to add before we move on to the next question, and that is uh, all of all of everything Jim says is completely right. And uh, <laughs> but what he's <laughs> missing is is that you need to have the capacity to do all the things he just described after withstanding the first strike on us. So that's why you have to have more 
than what you think you need because you've got to anticipate that if we are not going to have a launch on warning policy and in fact we are willing to take some hits first before we might retaliate then we have to we have to determine what's the percentage of our capability and capacity that will be lost in the first strike that we can then continue to hold at risk um, and retaliate accordingly that secure second strike capability, which is often referred to, is, by the way, essential to minimalism, but is also essential to the rest of deterrence, um, uh, even to a maximalist like me, um, in that you've got to make sure you have enough that uh, the reason why it's the worst day of your of your history is because you've actually taken the incoming and now you've got to operate and retaliate. If they don't, if the adversary doesn't believe you can actually do that, that they can wipe you out or at least attack you enough and devastate you enough that you have a significant uh, risk of capitulation before you even retaliate, then there isn't, then that is destabilizing. There is an incentive for that. What, what, what uh, Mearsheimer refers to as the splendid first strike. So we want to make sure capacity is important, which means you have to have the ability to retaliate even after you've taken the first strike. And that's why survivability and survivability yep. testing is so incredibly exactly. important to deterrence. Exactly. Well, let me move on to question number two, which is, is a great one. I think it's relevant today. And that is, what are the reasons for and against road mobile ICBMs? So, what, Jim, why don't you take that one first since Curtis took the last one? Well, well, first of all, I've already set myself up because I said survivability <laughs> is key. And if you can move around the battlefield or you can move around your, your own nation and you can move the location of the, you know, your, your forces, then it becomes more difficult to locate them and also to target them. And so pre-targeting becomes more difficult. So that's the first piece. I mean, that's the whole purpose, right? Uh, you get, you make it, you know, go back to Curtis's whack-a-mole theory. You give too many targets and now you got too many targets that keep moving. Cause you know, whack-a-mole would be no fun if all the moles were just sticking up out of the hole all at the same time, but you don't know where they're coming from and you don't know where they're going. And so that's the whole purpose behind the, you know, the, the mobility of the launchers. Uh, the second piece that becomes valuable in the mobile launchers is they give you the ability because they, they are not expensive, expensive or permanent like holes in the ground that take, that, that take a lot of time uh, to build and field. They give you the ability to flex up and down, as you mentioned earlier, Adam. So both of those are really important parts of the strategy with the mobile launchers. And I would say the last piece of that, and it's the negative, is you do have a lot of maintenance and, you know, uh, a cost associated with, you know, moving something around. You have the chances of accidents. You know, we put a missile in a missile silo. It's not moved around. There are less chances of something going wrong. And so that's the flip side of that. But you have to have procedures and operational procedures to be able to to work that. And that's why we do training and, you know, evaluation of those things and exercises. Curtis, I, I see you. So, uh, so let me start off with, you know, as, uh, is that the road mobiles, um, I, uh, you know, which are primarily China and Russia. We, I don't believe in, we have any road mobiles, 
Um, but I would say this is, it is what I like to think of is, is, um, uh, is why Russia has a quadrad instead of a triad. Um, and so uh, for Russia, their, their road mobiles are essentially their secure second strike capability, not their submarines. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, of course, they have this huge landmass that they can all disappear and hide in, right, <laughs> uh, that that makes them uh, much um, uh, uh, able, much more able to hide and for harder for us to track, especially on that worst day, you know, if satellite systems have been attacked or cyber or whatever. And, and you know, how do we track them, find them and hit them before they can attack, you know, another American city? Um, and so that becomes a very, very hard thing. And that's that's part of the Russian deterrence formula against us is that it's difficult for us uh, to, to find these road mobiles. Uh, Jim's points are fantastic. You know, you've got maintenance challenges, security challenges. Your communications with these vehicles are a lot harder uh, because they're mobile. Um, and so it would be uh, theoretically more of a challenge for Russia or China to stay connected. Now they have procedures and, and whatnot to do that. Uh, but they are uh, they are difficult to count, by the way, when they're out of garrison. I think that the New START Treaty has some challenges with that. And uh, and so there's a, a, a lot of those kinds of things that, that are restrictive. But the best part about road mobiles is that they are cheap to deploy uh, and and you can hide them. And, uh, and and get them out. Now, it would be very difficult, I think, to deploy road mobiles along, uh, you know, the American interstate system. Uh, how would you hide them? And, and, you know, you know, Americans would be reporting them and taking pictures of them on Twitter and and uh, and doing well, these sorts of things. So it would be difficult for us to hide them if, if we were to go the road mobile route. Well, uh, not let, that I'm let me opposed. First of all. The point is never to actually hide them. I mean, their hide sites that they go to are usually on, you know, bases. So if you take these huge bases that we have in Montana and North Dakota, and it's that, you know, let's suppose you've got 150 kiloton Russian ICBM, 200 kilotons, whatever you want it to be. If that, if that tail can move at 25 miles an hour, it can be out of the range. So if that sucker's moving around and it has four or five potential sites that it, that it'll set up on that's and and we can watch them by satellite. If they, if they're flushing from garrison because you know, they've gotten, you know, a launch warning, we don't necessarily know which of their possible sites they're going to. And therefore it's, you know, or, we can't really target one or we have to guess, well, which one it's going to, it's one of four, which, which one is it? And this is a problem with the North Koreans. It's not that we can't see them. It's that, you know, we don't know which of their hide sites they're going to go to. That, that's the really hard part. And then like with the Russians, the, the really the challenging thing, and this is where I think <clears throat> we should be doing this. This is actually the better model. I think for us, and that is rail mobile ICBMs. The Russians had them during the Cold War. And then they've, you know, whenever they had their financial challenges, they, you know, they got rid of them. And then there was a plan to build new rail systems. And I don't know if they built them or not. But the U.S. has thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of, of rails that we could easily put 
rail, you know, put ICBMs on rail cars that are indistinguishable and the Russians would never know. So I so, think we've got multiple delivery vehicles yeah. or delivery methods that would be really, really good. So, so I'm, we're going to go ahead and ignore wait, Jim. Wait, wait. So I, go I, ahead. I, to, I, um, I, I would <laughs> say this. Um, uh, I, I think we're in, in, in agreement here. <laughs> Um, I, I would say, though, that on the, the train issue or the rail issue, uh, uh, that the challenges with rail is they are a little bit more predictable. Uh, and if you, you know, assuming you don't have any fears of them, of, of a train accident, which has recently occurred in Ohio. Uh, and so you know, it, it, I think in America, that would be a challenge, I think, politically uh, to do those oh, yeah. things. No question. Uh, but I think to your point, Adam, the idea that we, we may know where their hide sites are, <laughs> but now we have to target all of them. And so that is a complicating matter that, the, yeah. that, the, that they have done to us. And again, it Heck furthers yeah. their deterrent argument towards us. And if it makes sense, then it is the reason why we always have to keep the ICBMs in the holes uh, and, and to, to complicate you know, their targeting. Go ahead, Jim. You wanted to add something. You know, I was going to say, and this fits to your minimalist view, is that if you have more sites available where weapons may or may not be, that gives you the ability to have that second strike. And that deters your enemy from making the first strike, which is the entire reason, you know, the way you make deterrence work. And so it makes sense. And by the way, you're you're both, you know, bringing up your inner Reagan, you know, that was his idea was the rail, <laughs> rail mobile ICBMs. Uh, although I tend to agree with Curtis, I, you know, the, the good thing about road or all terrain mobile, I don't know, maybe we can have, you know, someone, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, maybe on snowmobiles and someone, you know, bobsleds, horseback. yeah, horseback, you know, whatever it takes, you know, <laughs> But seriously, you know, when you when you think about all those other methods, though, you have to have con ops that are trained and planned and exercised. And by the way, I just pass on that I was sitting with a group of people last night and we were talking about the good old days when we would practice these things. And 30 years ago, a 155 batteries would practice and train you know, firing nuclear weapons from those batteries at various locations. And it be, and, and, and now I'm talking about tactical nuclear weapons versus strategic. But mm -hmm. the point is that we have a, a large group of people like myself who have gray, gray hair and, and know what you're talking about when you mention Jane. Um, the, uh, you know, we have a group of us who used to practice this on a daily basis. But you have leaders and people that are operating right now that have never done that kind of stuff, never thought that way. And it's time to think that way in order to deter an aggressive adversary who is thinking that way already. So we need to get ahead of that curve. Well, let me just throw this out there, and I'm not going to give you guys a chance to respond because we got to move to the final question. Well, I don't and, have any candles. <laughs> well, but but what I want to say is... ICBMs dropped out of the back of C-17s. And so let me move on to the third question. I, a, it's actually probably the best delivery method we could have, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, question number three. This one will go to you first, Jim, because this is a, a technical question. So how are our space assets 
affected if China uses nuclear weapons in the space domain? All right. Well, thanks. So, yeah, Adam. Yeah. So space space is, a you know, sort of extremely important from a military operational standpoint. I mean, everything that we have almost uh, depends on something in space, whether it's communication, whether it's surveillance, whether it's intelligence, whether it's navigation. I mean, it all happens in space. And so if nuclear weapons are used in space, they do a variety of things. And I can't go into that in great detail with the time we have left, except to say that they are the, the difficulty in a nuclear weapon in space is that one, the radiation is uninhibited through the, uh, through, through space. So therefore the range at which you have effects is much larger. The debris fields in space, of course, result in radiation that will be much longer and more residual in space. Number two, number three the chance of producing an electromagnetic pulse, of course, at high altitudes and it being very large region of, uh, of effect is very, uh, very possible depending on the location and the uh, weapon height. And then last, most people don't think about it. The debris field is in space. If you've seen the movie Gravity, it just gives you an idea what happens when something very big explodes in space. And all the assets now are brought down because of the debris ramming into them at very high velocities. And so now you have all these things happen. So it would be, I mean, it would be, you know, a, a, a bad thing to happen. But here's my flip side to that and why uh, the question I throw out to our audience and to, to you, and that is, what do we do? We know this is a possibility. We know that space assets are vulnerable. It's hard to protect them. And not saying they can't be protected, but very hard to protect them against the effects of nuclear weapons. So what do we do if all those assets go away or are damaged? What's next, Curtis? Balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. <laughs> you know what? Who you know who I hear makes really good ones that are low cost, high quality? China? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh absolutely. Uh you know, we are more dependent on space probably than any other nation out there for not only our defense issues, but you know, just our commerce and and navigation and so forth. And uh so uh, that is uh, something that has to be considered. Certainly, space assets are a target. Uh, the question will be is, will uh, will attacks on space assets be a precursor uh, to a nuclear attack? If they attack command and control or, um, or detection and surveillance assets in space that are specifically for nuclear um, issues, uh, is that a precursor? whether it's uh, kinetic cyber uh, or a non-kinetic attack that's not cyber, you know, blinding or whatever. Um, how does that, how does that play a role? And so, and, and I think what we have to wrestle with here as a policy uh, in this country in America is to decide uh, what's our reaction to that. Uh, it can't be just to ignore it and let it float across the United States. You have to be able to be prepared and have something that you can deploy quickly uh, to to fill that gap, so to speak, uh, so that you're not left uh, deaf, dumb, and blind uh, to the next uh, to the next Cur step in Curtis, the uh, in the attack. Curtis, we've solved that problem. We've got a guy. His name is Elon. 
He's <laughs> put up go. a system <laughs> called Starlink, which is more accurate than GPS, by the way, and it's PNT. And uh, I, you know, I'm pretty confident that if he saved the car industry already. He's saving space. And he's going to save uh, NC3. I, I don't know what else there is to say, Jim. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to go back to my my last part of my question because I had to go quickly in my description. Although, you know, come to nuclear knowledge and I'll be talking more about space assets, too, and survivability. But the point the point I want to make is that we know there are vulnerabilities. We know the, but we know there are workarounds. We know there are capabilities. We need to begin engaging those so we can show our enemies or our adversaries, however you want to look at them, that we can, we can survive. We can launch. We can uh, continue to operate regardless what they do. Then they won't do it. And by the way, anything, any asset in space that, that would destroy other people's assets would likely take out their own. So it does level some of the playing field, although not much of it. So it, you know, it depends on how you want to operate your military and what you're based on. And again, that goes to training operations and planning, which is the main piece of what we should be doing. So the 2022 word, national defense strategy talks about deterrence by resilience. Uh, I'm not sure I actually agree that resilience is part of deterrence is, is deterrence, but I'll tell you it is part of deterrence. And the ability to survive and be resilient and be enduring and recoverable and these sorts of things um, are, are definitely um, um, uh, vital to a successful deterrent strategy. But that means you you have to do the research, you have to do the acquisition, you have to, uh, to, to Jim's point, you got to do the concept of operations. You've got to practice these things. You got to utilize them, not only because we need to know how to do it on the worst day, but because the adversary needs to see that we can do it and that we have it and that it works. And therefore, juice isn't worth the squeeze. Don't attack. Amen to that. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. Uh, you know, these podcasts, they go so quickly. So fast. It's hard. You know, it's funny that we, we can do an entire podcast and talk about three questions and it, you can barely get it in. So they were well, great questions. for giving those questions. Yeah. Thanks to Mayron for giving us those. And of course, you're listening to the Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Now, I do have some bad news for you, the listeners. So next week is the no. Deterrence Summit in D.C. So we will not be here to do the show, but you could potentially, if you are if you did those um, Where's Waldo books as a kid, then you might be able to find us at the Nuclear Deterrence Summit. So if you are going to be there, make sure you come see us. Find us, say hello, because we will love to know that you're there because it's always important when you're doing podcasts, right? Let's be honest. Podcast is not network television. It's way better, <laughs> but we can always use a nice ego stroke by, by someone coming up and saying, Hey, I love the podcast. So please do that. So we'll see you next time, uh, which will be two weeks from now, two weeks from now. And for the next two weeks, I definitely want to encourage you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. 
The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.